0: Yeah, so we went off to Macau. But again, a a thing that's maybe hard for people to understand is even in that place, which was a school, uh, one of the teachers refused to teach us because we weren't Chinese. So we never could do clinic with her. Uh, She would not interact with us in classes Would going to the principal, who happened to be her husband, to try it get this worked out was we didn't, we didn't fail our classes. It was, it was, uh, it was tough. I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological,
1: the podcast that curates East Asian medicine and methods through the power of conversation. Acupuncture is weird, partly objective, partly subjective, get too far to the edges on either end and you lose some of the potency. I've tried for a long time to normalize it, squeeze acupuncture into the box of the rational, dress it up with the scientific method, and salt it with my, no doubt, extremely cherry-picked understanding of quantum physics. It never quite fit neatly into the categories and flowchart boxes in the basics books that I had in school. It rhymed with it, sure, but like a family secret, there was something that didn't quite fit. It's taken me a long time to realize that acupuncture, while systemic, it's not wholly objective. There's room for the pieces that don't fit, room for contradictions and subjectivity as well. And that perhaps has been the most challenging part to include, subjectivity. It goes so against the grain of what I was taught science was and who in our modern time doesn't want to follow the science. In typical Yang flipping into Yin, the true scientist rarely trades in certainties, but rather keeps an achingly open, inquiring mind because science requires the possibility that you might be wrong. And with enough data and understanding, long-held paradigms, they can crumble, but usually not without a fight. I know that fight because it's a fight that I have in my own mind, which is why I've attempted to control acupuncture into something my left brain could take to a cocktail party and make it not sound weird. But as of late, I've given up on that. I'm now fine with it being strange, not unlike getting on good terms with an eccentric relative because the world can be perfectly fine when it's weird and usually more interesting to boot. Now I let acupuncture be what it wants to be. I listen more to it rather than attempt to comb its hair nicely and dress it up for polite company. And here's the other piece that I finally gained some comfort with. Medicine, while it is a serious business, and all too often solemn in the face of blood chemistry, pet scans, or the ravages of aging. At the same time, medicine, it's full of discovery, joy, connection, and dare I say, love. Acupuncture, it is weird. And I don't think that's a bug, it's a feature. As a big nosed foreigner living in Chinese culture, it's weird, especially In the 70s, before the Western influence had worked its way into Taiwanese culture and studying Chinese medicine? Mm, Stranger yet. Especially when you're not looking to academically understand it, but rather studying it so as to learn to use it. While acupuncture was just beginning to find its way into the counterculture of the West, Dan Bensky was living in the traditional Chinese culture of Taiwan, and unlike the curriculum of a modern-day acupuncture school. His learning was anything but straightforward. I think you will enjoy this conversation on Dan's sojourn in Asia and the kind of discernment that he needed to develop to understand if his teachers were helping him to learn the medicine or putting obstructions into his path. We'll get into all this and more in a moment. Stay with us.
2: Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful, and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit Meiwei.com to find the perfect Ponsar brand formula, or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM learn about treatment strategies, and powerful herbal remedies. As we welcome the month of May, our focus is on women's health. Our newsletter articles and podcast episodes this month will highlight different aspects and unique challenges women face. So subscribe or tune in. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our women's health formulas this month. Just visit meiwei.com This season and every season, trust meiwei Herbs for your health and wellness needs. And thank you for supporting Real Chinese Medicine.
1: And be sure to mention the code GEOLOGICAL at the time of sign-up for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. I don't know about you, but sometimes I take a step back and marvel at my acupuncture needles. I mean, they're the world's simplest medical tool, a sharpened wire and a handle. That's it. And with this simple tool, hundreds of health conditions can be resolved. I love it. What I didn't love planting trees, and joining a community of practitioners changing the world. Like our simple needle, being a part of this solution, it's simple too. Visit AccuFastNeedles.com slash geological to learn how. Welcome to Shop Talk, In this portion of the podcast, we are bringing you roughly 15 minutes of practical clinical methods, perspectives, and advice that has its work boots on. This section is all about practical material that you can begin to investigate the next time that you walk into clinic. Additionally, visit the show notes page for supporting materials from this week's guest on Shop Talk. All right, roll up your sleeves, let's get to work.
3: Hello, this is Jason Robertson coming to you from Seattle, Washington. And what a pleasure it is to have a few minutes here with you guys uh, on the Shop Talk segment of Geological to talk about palpating the head, to talk about locating certain points on the head, specifically do points, do 19 and do 21, or what I'd like to talk about here eventually, how to locate these guys, how to think about palpated findings in this area, and some ideas about how to treat these points. And of course, I'm drawing, as I always do, from the extensive clinical experience of my teacher, Beijing professor Wang Juyi. And, and he and I worked on a textbook together, Applied Channel Theory in Chinese Medicine. And We've, you know, those of us who are his disciples and students have been teaching for years concepts of uh, using distal channel palpation, specifically below the elbows and knees as a means of kind of helping shape your diagnosis just like you would with tongue and pulse and and using channel palpation as a diagnostic tool. One thing that we maybe haven't had as much of a chance to talk about, and that's why I wanted to choose this subject today, was how Dr. Wong palpated the head. And how he kind of analyzed a little bit, palpated findings on the head. And uh, how you might think about using head points a little bit creatively yourself in your clinic. One thing to say at the outset is, you know, Dr. Wang's approach to locating points was shaped by his understanding of this term you see in the Neijing. The the character is jie in Chinese, which is sometimes translated to English as a joint, but it's also more like a separation are an opening and, and, and jie are not just bony joints. In other words, there are separation and openings throughout the body. And so, you know, one of Dr. Wong's fundamental concepts about point location was that for locating any point, you're looking for some sort of unique anatomical jie, some sort of anatomical joint that could be a, a joint within the skin. It could be a joint, of course, between bones, or it could even be joints within bones little notches you can feel in bones or maybe bifurcations of blood vessels that are a certain like a that would be called that a mydia like a a blood vessel joint and there's all these different kind of anatomical and palpable aspects of the body near the official point locations that will help you refine and and kind of get further into the best place to put the needle specifically on the head what Dr. Wong would say when looking for these head points, you know, when you look at the maps of the head points from your acupuncture textbooks, they're, you know, very logically laid out as this many tun separated from that point and this many tun from the other. But any of you put your hands on people's heads, and I'm sure many of you have in your clinical work, you've noticed that heads are shaped differently. You know, there's different muscle structure of the heads, the way the bones come together, uh, the way the cranial sutures feel on different people's heads are different. And so, taking this idea of always looking for the anatomical space when locating points uh, onto the head, um, certainly when you're thinking about the lateral head points, maybe the gallbladder and sand channel on the sides of the heads, then what you're often feeling for is little divots almost between muscle attachments. Those are kind of little, what he would call, um, you know, like rogia, spaces between the attachments of the flesh you can feel. So the head points kind of float a bit. And so you use those point location maps we see in the textbooks as a starting place, and then you put your hands on the patient and look for the, the kind of the palpable separations that you can feel at the points. And they're often, yes, they're tender, uh, so they feel different to you and the patient. But getting to the do vessel, and these are the, the, the two points I really want to talk about in particular, as I said earlier, do, uh 19. Ho Ding and Do 21, Chanding, those are the points that are essentially on either side of the more famous, probably do 20. I'm sure many of you have, have located and talked about and used in your own clinical work. Dr. Wong loved Du 19 and Do 21. So first let's talk just a moment about, you know, how he, you know, his his strategy for locating these points. And then of course we know that officially you have Do 20, which is thought of as being five to an, you know, posterior to the anterior headline hairline or seven up from the posterior hairline. And of course, many people don't have hair and hair is different. So that's problematic. And often we locate do 20 instead by going from the uh, line drawn from the earlobe to the apex of the ear and going to the top of the head. Maybe as you're listening, find do 20 on yourself. It's that kind of top of the head vertex point that, that, that many of us know and use and love, of course. Um, and then in front of that, officially one and a half to an in front, you have do 21 chanding and, and, uh, one and a half to behind that you have do 19. So how did Dr. Wong find these points and how did he think about using these points? So first about finding when he would describe the location of do 19, he would talk about first finding the external occipital protuberance that bump on the back of your head on those occipital bones that where they come together, there's that, that protuberance and then going uh, you know, directly below that, we know that's do 16 and officially then do due, due 17, 18 and 19 are divided into quarters on the way to do 20. So then you would say that do 17 is one quarter of the way up between 16 and 20, you know, do 18 is, is, you know, halfway between do 16 and do 20. And then do 19 is, you know, is three quarters of the way between do 16 and do 20. And that's one way to locate those. And what Dr. Wong found, and you can see me alluding to this as I'm talking about it earlier, is that people's heads are different. So you got to find different ways to find these points. And so he would say that first find that protuberance and then palpate upward, you know, and you're of course, you're going along the suture there between the two occipital bones and you're palpating up in this area and you'll feel a little divot, roughly one to an up. That first divot or notch you find, that's due seventeen. And then, as you palpate further up, you'll feel another divot in those occipital, uh, the, the you know the intersection of the occipital bones, and that would be due eighteen. And then, due nineteen is a really fascinating and actually pretty precisely located point because it's an intersection of two sutures. So, at the if you you know take a look at an anatomy book, you see the the occipital bones there on the back of the head, the parietal bones on the side, and intersecting the occipital and parietal bones. You have this lambdoid suture, which comes up from the mastoid process. You can kind of trace that up like a little triangle, and it intersects with the sagittal sutures that are between the two parietal bones. That interesting anatomical intersection uh, between the lambdoid and sagittal sutures, that is where DU-19 is located. So it's this really interesting cranial suture location, and there is very often interesting palpable change in this point DU-19. So Dr. Wong told a story about how he started using Du 19 in the treatment of a, of a difficult stroke patient who's having a pain in their foot. And he you know, was having trouble, didn't know what to do, and started palpating around on the head and, and found at Du 19 an extreme tenderness. And when he pressed this point, it, it immediately relieved the foot pain. And he, he became, you know, this was probably in the 1970s and 80s, and he became very interested in this point. And over time, he found... That not only can this point, you know, the classics describe Du-19 as often being used for neck pain and dizziness, but what he particularly liked to to use Du-19 for was for issues along the Du-vessel and the we'd say the collaterals, the law of the Du-vessel, which we often think of as the Jia-ji line uh, or the Tai-yang channel, the bladder channel in the back, and sometimes the Xiaoyin channel affecting back pain. So this is actually a really interesting point that he would often use for low back pain patients. And often what you'd find is a palpable tenderness at this point in this intersection point. And when he would find that, he would use a one and a half ton needle, maybe inserting a little bit superior to the location of due 19 and threading that needle subcutaneously into this area. And he had a technique that he called a rubbing technique. He likened it to like rubbing uh, like a piece of uh, fur on a glass rod to create static electricity. So once the needle was inserted, he would press down and, and do a rubbing technique while having the patient sit erectly, having the patient kind of cough, which is often nerve wracking for someone with an acute back sprain, and then having them move while stimulating this point. And it's really interesting how you can often get an immediate change with this fairly strong stimulation of this technique while mobilizing the patient's back. So we'd often treat it in a seated position. There's a little more detail to that technique, which is of course difficult to fully describe here in a few minutes on a podcast, but start palpating this area on patients with issues with their lumbar vertebra, maybe the paraspinal muscles that affect the dew vessel and the Tai channel in the back. When they're out of place, Try stimulating this point, locating it in the way I'm describing in these sutures and having them move around and see if you can... Uh, you know, while stimulating the point, get some relief in that pain. It's often very useful for the type of patient who comes into the clinic and is, you know, you can't even get them on the table because their back is so is so out of place. And again, especially when it's affecting the tai yang and the dew vessels, not as much the xiaoyang, gallbladder channel type of sciatica pain. This is more of a medial pain, maybe going down the back of the legs or acute pain in the back itself, or maybe in the neck as well. Any of these aligning ligaments and muscles along the back can be treated and thought of uh, uh, using due nineteen. Now, for the next couple of minutes, let's kind of keep moving forward. As you go forward from due uh, twenty, a one and a half tone in front of that is another really fascinating point. Due twenty-one, tending. This point has another totally different kind of personality, and this point often, if you palpate this on people, it can be very tender and almost squishy feeling. Like there's a little bit of micro edema. Uh, in the fluids there between the skin, you know, the the, the scalp and the and, and the bones of the head. This point is, of course, also within that sagittal suture, not all the way in front and the coronal suture way up in front of that. That's due 22, Xin Hui. It's kind of between that uh, and due 20, um, due 20, of course. And right in that midpoint between that coronal suture and due 20, you'll find, and it's kind of a little bit of a floater of a point, you'll find this this tender spot, due 21, and this point has an interesting personality in that it often reflects a lack of clear yang coming to the head. Dr. Wong talked about qing yang, clear yang coming to the head. And this could be a patient maybe with kind of a fuzzy thinking, almost like water in the head. Maybe even certain patients who have like a lingering sinus infection where there's like a clear discharge, not 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 a green discharge. So it's like a, a lack of yang transforming fluids in the head. If you can imagine all the symptoms, maybe dizziness that come from this lack of clarity of yang. And he would describe that type of yang often as coming from a warmth in the middle burner. So a lot of time, maybe these patients have like a spleen deficient personality. You may palpate their abdomen and it's a little cold around REN12 and yet they have this lack of clear yang coming to the head, kind of a dizziness, a fuzziness of thinking, uh, fluid accumulations in the head or sinuses, and Du 21 can be very tender. So this point, you might even, uh, I would often use Du 21 first diagnostically to think about the lack of clear yang, and then you need to do a differential diagnosis to think about why clear yang isn't coming to the head. Maybe it's a like a, a deficiency of, this, of the tie system not sending fluids up. Of course, that could be a kidney deficiency maybe. Uh, maybe on the other hand, there's like an excess below that is not allowing yang to come up. So the the mechanisms of why DO-21 is tender can vary, and that's where you need to you know, palpate other channels, use tongue, use pulse and questions, and use other differential diagnosis. But this point gives you a way of thinking that we need to facilitate a raising of clear yang in this patient. Uh, maybe in some cases you might do moxibustion at REN12 to to warm the middle burner so it percolates fluids up. Maybe in some cases you might need to descend like stasis in Yang Ming by using points like stomach 37 and stomach 39 together to descend that turbidity so that Yang rises back up. Maybe it is a kidney deficient patient and you maybe would be using moxibustion at REN6 or or at DU4 or, or tonifying Yang herb formulas or something um you have to be a little bit creative about interpreting this but it, you will certainly find it is interestingly reflective through palpation of some sort of uh, it, it's often a squishiness you'll feel in this case when there's a lack of clear young coming upwards so that's just two points do 19 do 21 the, the big idea as i started to say at the beginning here is When you're looking for points on the head, use those twin measurements that we learn in acupuncture school as a starting place, but then put your hands on the patient and feel on this patient the anatomical structures and look uh, for the palpable jie, the palpable openings, the palpable spaces between muscles or within bones or between bones and find the points creatively a little bit and needle them often subcutaneously and and you know go deeper into head points. There's a lot to say here about using them diagnostically and in treatment. So that that's the main thing I wanted to say. For anyone who's interested in learning more about applied channel theory, the other apprentices and I of Dr. Wang Jui, we have a, a a podcast of our own called Dialogues in Applied Channel Theory. And that podcast we've been doing it for a couple of years. We kind of are intermittent when we put them up, but there's a. Uh, there's a bunch of episodes there where we're discussing a variety of uh, cases and a variety of concepts related to Dr. Wang Juyi's work. You can find that on any anywhere you get your podcast. And also, if anyone is hearing this right now in September of 2023, uh, I have an upcoming course I'm going to be teaching in Chicago. It'll be an introductory course on channel palpation. We have NCCAOM um, uh, credits for that. And if you're interested in attending that course, it's going to be coming up. Here in September 16th and 17th, 2023 in Chicago. Uh, just type in your web browser, uh, Applied Channel Theory, in the and Eventbrite. You can find it in Eventbrite, and you'll see the sign-up information there. I uh, hope to see a few of you in Chicago or somewhere else. Uh, we also have a website, of course, channelpalpation.org, where you'll see other courses and a bunch of free downloadable material under the media tab, channelpalpation.org. And thank you to Geological as usual for providing so many interesting discussions that all of us around the world are enjoying. Donate to Geological, become a supporter. I am. And uh, this is just a great resource for all of us. All right. Thank you very much. Put your hands on the head. Bye.
1: Dan Bensky, welcome back to Geological. Always a pleasure. Always a delight. Yeah, I love hanging out with you. And uh, today, We're doing a history series on uh, how acupuncture found its way into mainstream culture here in the West. When I came along to go to acupuncture school, when I decided maybe I want a career change, I had the great good privilege of being able to look at acupuncture as as a viable profession, a viable career, something to do. It was established. I could get a license. I could go to accredited school. Well, I could go to an accredited school. Turns out I went to one that was not accredited, but they eventually got accredited because it was new. And, you know, basically there was a profession that I could walk into, but it wasn't always that way. It's a fairly new thing to have acupuncture as a licensed profession here in the West. And um, you have been a part of the, uh, I guess we could say, unfolding of that profession. You were here... Kind of in the beginning, before you probably knew there was a beginning. So I'd like to start with, like, when did you first hear about acupuncture? When did it like come into your awareness? What year was that, and what was going on in the world around that time?
0: I uh, mean, uh, everything about me is slightly off, but um, so I was nineteen seventy-two. Probably the first time I heard about acupuncture was when the vast majority of Americans first heard about acupuncture, was when um, a reporter for the New York Times who was accompanying Nixon and Kissinger had to have an appendectomy in Beijing, I believe, and had some form of acupuncture analgesia, acupuncture anesthesia was called, and that's the first time I heard of it. And that that must have been before, that must have been maybe around that time, 71, maybe. I was in Taiwan in 72, and, um, you know, I got very, very sick. I guess in the end, fortunately for me, very, very fortunately for me, was some kind of infection that did not respond to Western medicine. So I had gotten treatment of, I don't know exactly what, from a, Chinese practitioner of Western medicine, and then I didn't get better, and I had a big antibiotic injection from a Canadian MD who was a missionary in Taiwan, and that didn't help, and then later, uh, I got introduced to someone doing Chinese herbs, and uh, that worked very well for me, so that's how I got interested to begin with. And then I heard about uh, acupuncture, which, you know, was not, I would say at that time, was not really that big a deal in Taiwan either. But it it did exist. It was legal. Uh, And so that's how I first heard about it and, and had my first interactions with people doing acupuncture.
1: Yeah. What are you doing in Taiwan in 1972?
0: Trying to learn Chinese. Mm. so uh, i had gone to school in the university of michigan in 1970 studying 70 and uh i said let's be kind and say i'm not the uh world's uh, best student of languages or i don't have a talent for languages and i did okay but not very well so uh, if i was going to actually learn it i had to do immersion and uh, in those days, the only place, and I would say probably today still the best place to study Chinese is Taiwan. So I went there. I didn't know anybody I didn't know. I just went uh, hooked up with a program at the uh, National Taiwan Normal University and st- that that's what happened. What a great name for a school National Taiwan Normal University. <laughs> <laughs> and we used to I used to joke well I uh, somehow they I slipped it anyway despite the name, but you know, normal universities, I don't know why this is, but normal universities, normal you know, is the word for teaching, schools for teachers, to, to teach the you know, primary and secondary school teachers. So what the story is of that name, I do not know. I don't know, teachers are, well, primary
1: and secondary school, they're trying to normalize you. Maybe that, I don't know either. So. All right, a couple of courses of antibiotics, that didn't help. Well, Chinese herbs, what were you thinking at that moment in time? Like, okay, this didn't work. I'm in this foreign country.
0: It's not a modern country at this point. Like, what the heck, Dan Penske? Yeah, well, I mean, my memory, my thought was when my, uh, first of all, the was, I believe it was my landlady, and uh, she had to convince me, like you know, it was like, yeah the word is yi, i didn't know what that meant you know chinese medicine and then like yeah i thought it was some kind of folk medicine and uh i was resistant because you know i was like sick i don't need folk medicine i need real medicine and um then uh i had nothing but i tried that that hadn't worked i was really quite ill i had uh fluctuating fevers up to one Oh four. I, I had lost a tremendous amount of weight. I was coughing up stuff that looked like came from a bad science fiction movie. So I decided what I had I had to try something. And again, it's a long story. It was the, the whole atmosphere, you know, in, in those days in Taiwan, pretty much you want to get herbs you would went to an herb shop and then the shop, the guy who was the pharmacist would also be the doctor. And I believe there was no fee for any consultation, but you had to buy the herbs there. And it's a long story. It's too long maybe for this uh, thing, but it was, I would say if there were any placebo effects, they were all negative placebo. Like the store was dirty, they had like you know walrus penises and the uh, sea uh, seahorses, and the guy was uh, hadn't put his shirt on correctly, and uh, you know all sorts of stuff like that. I, I remember the one. I remember the. Again, all this stuff is quite ironic in retrospect. But he took my pulse for quite a while, and uh, that's 1972. So I am 19 years old. And I kept thinking, well, maybe I should just lend him my watch. I'm I'm thinking he's like trying to count how fast my pulse is, and he kept losing track. He asked me some off-the-wall questions. Didn't ask me anything about why I was there. There's some about my digestion, and he gave me what I looked like yard waste to me. We had had that sound like insects and baked plums and grass and bark. You know all that. Uh, I went back home. I was exhausted from the experience and went back to sleep. Uh, when I woke up, there was this, you know, herbal decoction by my bed. It, again, I remember very clearly thinking, this looks and smells like the River sticks." you know? Like, you would have to be one desperate son of a bitch to drink this shit. And i uh, like, well. Well, that's me. That's me. And, um. I drank it and when I woke up, I felt a little bit better. And I believe he gave me three packets. So at the end of the three packets, except for being somewhat tired, I felt fine. So that's how I got interested.
1: What was that like to find yourself, hey, I'm okay now? I mean, what did, what did that do to your your sense of the world? The way that you made, you know, especially with things like science and medicine, because you know, like you were saying, you were one sick puppy. You don't need some damn folk medicine. Now you're drinking this stuff and you're like, okay.
0: Well, you no, know, it was, that that journey took a lot longer. You know, my initial thought was like, again, I think like most people saw at the time, it was like, oh, there must be some interesting ingredients in here. And, you know, we can scientifically, uh, I had no, i was to say, I had a long, long term since I was, 11 or 12 interest in Chinese philosophy but it wasn't like oh this is the it was not like oh this is the philosophy come to life this is great it was more like oh this is interesting stuff you know if I study it maybe we can figure out what it, you know again typical Westerner. we can figure out what it really is <laughs> <laughs> uh anyway uh and uh so yeah it, it did not really it, it was. I think that was just the first step. Like, oh, okay. And for me, it was like I like Chinese very, very much. It doesn't like me quite so much. So uh, this will give me a chance to do something useful. It, I didn't. It wasn't. Uh, it was just that. It wasn't life changing. It was life changing. That it set the course for the rest of my life. But it wasn't like a with with a spiritual experience. Or like, oh, now I see. <laughs> my life laid out before me yeah i'm gonna go do this yeah and then it's like okay this sounds interesting this used I, I like this that way i could use chinese to help people that would be super cool that's probably the extent of it at the i had no idea what i was in for that's that's for sh- damn sure so um it was more like okay this makes sense you know uh, so that's that's it there wasn't uh, anything grandiose in any way I had no idea what I was in for. Yeah, so, for for, for example, again, yeah, versus when you were, it wasn't like, okay, well, I want to study it, so I'll find a school and... and so, <laughs> 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 finding a place to study was very, very difficult. And uh, much to my great luck, I think, uh, so, I mean, people... There was a school in Taichung, but it didn't really, it wasn't fully operational as a Chinese medicine school. So for example, later when we got very serious, we had certain criteria for the school and who we is, and I'll explain who we is in just a minute. The criteria had, one of the criteria is that it had to have its own curriculum, that to be a school, it had to have its own textbooks. It didn't matter what those textbooks were, but it had to have a series of textbooks. And it had to have clinic that was associated with the school. Because uh, lots of the night, they had like night programs. They would teach you the fundamentals. Then you would have to find some clinic in which to practice it, to learn from. Yeah, and that was not going to happen for us because we had tried. I mean, again, personally, I went to over a hundred places in Taiwan trying to find someone to teach me.
1: That's knocking on a lot of doors and getting a lot of damn rejection.
0: Oh yeah, rejection is a yeah. It's one way of putting it. The other thing, Michael, which you have to, it's hard for people to really get now is, I knew, I knew that I didn't know anything. And I mean, not know anything to the point of I had no real way which I was comfortable in deciding this is a good program or not program, right? Because I'm a westerner, right? I was not less than normal brightness westerner.
1: Yes, 19 years old. That doesn't help either.
0: So, like, if someone tells me how to do something in it in the beginning, the very beginning of the thing. It makes sense to me. Well, maybe that means it's wrong because it makes sense to me. And, um, you know, we had a lot. And again, in this process, I met a couple other guys, one which was Ted Kapchuk, so who was also have to be in Taiwan. Uh, he must have got to just a little bit after me. And he had been, if you were interested in acupuncture outside of Taiwan and you wanted to study in Taiwan, they sent you to someone. I believe his name was Wu Wei Ping, who was a terrible acupuncturist, actually, but he had connections with the military and the government. And Ted had been sent to study with him. And Ted is a very, very clever person, very smart person. And he figured out very quickly that this guy was was full of shit, basically, and managed to not only get out of the contract he had signed with him to study but got his money back and I it's a amazing feat so anyway i met him um, at a meditation there's a weekly meditation thing on sundays that i have i ended up going to and i met him there and we were the two westerners looking to study Chinese medicine in taiwan so we did a lot of some of the stuff together and uh you know so people would tell you things like oh well you need to Come work with me, uh, you know, sweep my floors and they'll cook for me and do all that stuff for two or three years. And then I'll teach you the eating for two or three years. And, uh, and then I'll teach you the medicine. And oh, by the way, for the privilege of doing it, uh, you need to pay me $6,000 U.S. upfront. So those were simple because like, well, I can't do that. Right, I mean, whether it was made sense or not was unclear, but it was like I don't have, heck, that's like you know I don't know what six thousand dollars and that twenty twenty three money is, but it's like must be at least twenty thousand dollars. Like I, you know that was a joke. And again, I have to be honest; it made this be. I learned that sometimes people would tell you outrageous things, like maybe something like that. Not because they wanted you to pay them $6,000, because they just wanted you to go away and not be in the position where, oh, I told you to get lost, right? Like, oh, you decided you didn't want to study with me. Well, you know, that's your decision, right? That's You know that thing. That's a very common way in which, you know, things get, you know, the of Bingfa is permeated in many different aspects of East Asian culture. So I don't. I can't tell you whether they were hoping I would pay them the money, or they would. But then all people would just laugh at you, or people would, I think, pretend they couldn't understand you, and all all sorts of different things. So anyway, after a while, so this at that time the school in Taijong did not have its own clinic. Now I think it's a very excellent school, but this is this is almost fifty years ago, and so uh, we kept doing things, and then Ted. Uh, went to Hong Kong and he found a school in Macau because most of the schools in Hong Kong were did not have their own clinic. And a lot of them were either just herbs or just acupuncture. And we had decided that, well, we're going to spend all the time learning this. We'd like to learn both. And the school in Macau, which is, I can give you the story, but actually it checked all the boxes. So it, uh, it had its own clinic. So off to Macau. Yeah, so we went off to Macau. But again, a a thing that's maybe hard for people to understand is even in that place, which was a school, uh, one of the teachers refused to teach us because we weren't Chinese. So we never could do clinic with her. Uh, She would not interact with us in classes. So, and again, yeah, we're going to the principal who happened to be her husband uh, to try it get this worked out was we didn't we didn't fail our classes but uh so yeah you know, it was it was uh, it was tough and of course the other thing of course is tough for us is uh, you know it was all in chinese of course everything's in chinese and then i guess one thing i remember had a huge uh, many things had a huge impression on me was um most of the other people in our school the school was small probably 20 people, 20 students, maybe it just started, were people who were the daughters or sons of people who did Chinese medicine. And, of course, they were all uh, people who were interested in Chinese medicine. Like, they wouldn't be in school. And they had a head start. so I remember reading about dampness. Like, what the hell is that? Right? And it's like, what do you mean, what the hell is that? It's dampness. hey, Hey, so... You know they didn't I, I, you know, you know from working with me that I have this thought that in uh, in some aspects not all, but some aspects of East Asian medicine, precision and accuracy are mutually exclusive, that the more precise you are talking about something, the less you actually get it. And I think I got that idea. It's just one the other people have different ideas. But from this kind of thing, for me, trying to, Okay, I'm going to be able to write dampness is these five or six things, right? I'm going to have a very precise a definition of dampness, and um, you know, it's like <laughs> you you're not as smart as you look, and you don't even look very smart to begin with. So, so that was interesting. And again, there's other language issues at the time, so all of our teachers were. People who had been were overseas Chinese from, I think they were mostly from Indonesia. Some were maybe from Cambodia, South Vietnam. Maybe not South Vietnam. Who had gone to study Chinese medicine in China before the Cultural Revolution and had just gotten out. So, one of the advantages and disadvantages. Uh, in our school, and or they were a Cantonese speaker. They were native speakers of Cantonese from Macau. Uh, so are they
1: teaching this in Cantonese or Mandarin?
0: No, they're teaching it in Mandarin, and no one in the school speaks Mandarin as a native language. So you're all a bunch of dang foreigners. And so I went to my very first fundamentals class from one of my favorite teachers, is very kind, very, very... Um, organized, systematic teacher, so easier for me, who was originally from, her family was from Fuzhou, not Fujian, so Fuzhou-wa, not, Fu, not, not Shaman-wa, and then growing up in Indonesia and gone to school in Yunnan. And she gave a lecture, and I didn't understand anything. And I was very, very distraught, like, it's my first lecture, and and I was studying Chinese for this at this point for three four years, and what's it, and, what, what, and I mentioned this to my classmates, and they said, oh, we don't understand her either. we'll We'll figure it out. <laughs> so like, for example, I guess this may not make sense to this may just you might, might want to cut this part out, but her fur and su and shu all sounded the same. So Fei Shu, and they sure the last part sounded the same. And so uh, the stu- other students can't determine excess or deficiency.
1: So, so you can't determine excess or deficiency because it sounds exactly the same.
0: And so what the students figured out was to get her to speak an expanded language. So I don't remember what they were, unfortunately, but like she would, they would use for both of those words. She would use a binomial so maybe instead of saying fei sure, she say fei sure sure, right? So that was oh that meant excess, and for face shu it was like was well, this wasn't it, but something like fei kong shu, okay. So that's deficiency. So a lot of the basic chemical terms, we had to figure out a code, not only for me, but for everybody else. But for everybody else as well. And then we had times in clinic. We had a very busy clinic. The clinic was great. And I remember once there was someone came from Hainan Island and she spoke Hainanese. She had a translator from Hainanese into Cantonese and then another translator from Cantonese into Mandarin and then the teacher. And so the, the, the discussion would go back and forth. That was uncommon. But every so often we had refugees who were from Northern China. I remember this one... Uh, a patient I treated for a couple of years. Uh, I thought she was old at the time. She was probably 60. Uh, we called her Danian because she was from northern China. And she spoke beautiful standard Mandarin. What a relief. What a relief to hear a standard. I think I also did something maybe, you know, a little like I would keep her there a few minutes longer uh, when I did acupuncture stuff self-learning just to listen to her talk. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So at the time, in terms of the profession, this, so that's I'm not really thinking about. I'm not at the time. I'm not thinking. Oh, I'm going to do this. I'm going to come back and and do that. I like. I'm not that kind of person. I just oh, I'm going to try and do this, and I'll keep doing it until I think, you know, I have a certain level of competency. So,
1: so basically, you were interested. You followed your interest. You're not sure where it's going to take you. It took you to some very interesting places, that's for sure. But you you weren't really thinking about, well, you know, I'm going to go back and make a living as an acupuncturist. That was not running through your mind.
0: No. I mean, I don't think I was. I mean, it wasn't like I'm not going to do that. It was just, I wasn't thinking that far ahead. I think that's right. Yeah. I had no idea what I would go back and what I would go back to. and I And I also had a very a jaundiced view of acupuncture in the U S for example, there was one group of people who were, um, there was a magazine called East West Journal, uh, which was like the big alternative medicine, new age magazine of the seventies. someone sent a, a a copy when we were in Macau, and there was a guy who was from England who was, uh, trying to take over acupuncture licensure, acupuncture in the U S. And he had his curriculum, etc. I was trying to sell it. Of course, it didn't work because there are, there are Chinese people in, in the United States. You can't. <laughs> but but the the point the point important here is that he was saying, well, you know, you shouldn't you should do this curriculum not because it's mine, but because I'm adopting the curriculum of the again. Don't quote me. I mean, you can fact check me on the name. It may, I may be wrong, but the name of the Chinese Acupuncture College of Hong Kong. So remember, China is completely closed at this point. It's the Cultural Revolution still going on, right? I have a funny story about that too. So, um and so it's just, it's not my curriculum, it's their curriculum, okay? And so like, I go, wait a second, I've been to that place. It's like a thousand square foot clinic. It's got like Two treatment rooms and an office. And for Westerners, the curriculum is again something like, oh, five hundred dollars for a master's degree, a thousand dollars for a doctoral degree.
1: How much is it? What degree do you want?
0: Yeah, what degree <laughs> do you want? So it's like and I and I wrote the this journal like something's off here. And uh they responded, oh, you know, it's too that's just we just like that's not our problem. So that was my introduction to acupuncture in america like oh they don't know anything and they don't care so that didn't make me like oh i better hightail it back to america soon and you know get going so i i was not thinking as far as i you know, i don't believe i was thinking about what my next step would be because this stuff was was a big deal and taking all of all of my uh, abilities to
4: continue <music> It's at ansesselsturman.com forward slash sinews 2024. Click on the jump to free teaching button or see the link on my Instagram page at Sturman. Thanks, Michael. Back to you.
1: Yes. My God, you know, I can remember sitting in clinics and, you know, people would come in from other provinces. And they would have such a thickly accented Mandarin, or maybe they weren't even speaking Mandarin. I don't know, because I could only understand every, you know, sixth word or something. But uh, you know, the teacher, the doctor seemed to know well enough what they were what they were talking about, because they can kind of understand each other. Like you know, here in the states, you could be from Boston, but you can understand someone from Louisiana most of the time. Most of the time
0: in the clinic, in our school the vast majority of the patients, I believe, were also refugees. So they were also from all over and all sorts of different kinds of accents and languages. But that's why we spent a lot of time on pulse diagnosis. School of refugees. Yeah, so there was school. The auspices the was the Macau Overseas Chinese Association. So they ran the clinic. They was you know, and they ran uh, the school. How long did they last for?
1: It, it sounds like uh, it was something that might have responded to a critical moment in time. Did it? Did it continue, or did it fade away?
0: The organization and the clinics, I believe, still exist. And I, I know that one of my classmates was working in clinics in a clinic run by the same organization. You know, in two thousand and six. But the school only lasted, I think it was a two-year program and it basically closed after we graduated because the uh, main teachers had just come out of China before we started and they realized, oh, we're in Hong Kong, Macau. We want to make money. Let's go into real estate. So main teacher (laughs) went into real, the guy was the principal, went into real estate. There was later another school with the same name in Macau, uh, Macau Institute Alman Jongi Macau Institute of Chinese, but as far as I know, no connection uh, to the school that, that I went to. So the principal and the teacher who wouldn't teach you, they uh, they went off into real estate. I think they did quite well. It wasn't hard to do well. if you had some, but uh, if you had some basic capital, which they probably got from their uh, relatives left in Indonesia. Well, I, I don't know anything, but I mean, they did. I, I heard that they did quite well. Also, his brother had written a pretty nice book on acupuncture. I think he also got into real estate. So, that's to my knowledge, that's what happened.
1: Okay. So, all right. Taiwan, Macau, you're following this stuff because you're interested in Chinese. And this is a really interesting aspect of Chinese life and culture. That's for sure. What comes next? Because eventually you did show up back here in the United States.
0: No, I did not. So after I finished my school, well, again, this is something that maybe you you understand. So I thought, oh well, I liked my teachers, but I know there are other really good teachers in Macau, and I had, you know, I had a uh, a friend, a couple friends of mine, and I had started an English night school. So that was a fairly easy way to make enough money to get by. So I thought that, oh, I'll just stay. Uh-huh. So you started an English night school. You found you founded this night school. Yeah, Choi Go, American Teachers English Night School. The main uh, person behind it was John O'Connor. But uh, I and ss uh, As, 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 As Long. So, yeah, so it, I mean, it wasn't, I mean, basically it was like we rented rooms at the local Anglican school. Choi Go was the first Chinese convert to Anglicanism. And then, you know, people, you know, uh, and it's a long story. It's a uh, wide people who, like if you, people would study with us at night, partially because some people are interested in English, partially because even if you were a worker who worked in the knitting factory, if you had a certificate that your English was at a certain level, your pay went up. And also because in those days, if you were in your 20s, and lived at home, you could not just go out and hang out with your friends at night. Your parents would not allow it. But you could go out and hang out with your friends and study English at night. That that was okay. So uh, or other things.
1: And of course, you were you were tremendously qualified to teach English because
0: you were white, big nose. Uh, maybe not even that. I don't, I don't think it was even. I think you were just someone from America. I think if we were. Not white being those, but we were American or some people. I know people in the 70s who were Austrian who taught English, have very good English, but it's very heavily Austrian <laughs> accented English. So it didn't take much in those days. And I think the reason in like Taiwan, we had, I worked at like the different bushiban, the different night schools. And you got, because you were a foreigner, you got higher pay. But it, Because Macau was a colony, if you wanted to teach in a regular, any kind of school, you wouldn't get a higher pay just because you were a foreigner. And so we wanted to work as little as possible because we were studying there. We didn't want to, you know, so we were able to, I'm not sure exactly, but probably eight, 10 hours a week to make our, you know, we didn't have, we weren't rich by any means, but we could pay our tuition and pay our rent and, you know, have enough money to eat anything extra we had to do extra kind of work but that's pretty sweet you know to work on eight ten hours a week and then you could study the rest of the time so it was a good deal so anyway so well, i thought, okay i'll stay here at this time i had learned some cantonese i could certainly understand patients talking in cantonese by and large i couldn't necessarily communicate with them so i thought well i'll stay here and i'll find another teacher uh, to work with but that didn't work because from my understanding i was identified with the people at this school and so why would someone else teach me because i'm identified with those people does that make sense to you, you know, right It was like a faction fa- I mean, they weren't like they didn't laugh at me they weren't they didn't tell me oh you no know, they didn't they were able to tell me no <laughs> not that why don't you give me twenty thousand dollars and i'll teach you Uh, so I did that for I realized at the time that wasn't going to work you know Volker Scheid talks about this a bit in the book he did on the Munker
1: clan about like you get into a certain group and now you're identified with that group like going outside that group that's like rejecting your family
0: yeah so you know I'm a clueless westerner but and also I don't look at things I still don't look at things that way I, I think that is not helpful to the development of any kind of Craft or medicine. So I went back to Taiwan because I like Taiwan. And uh, some things went well for me there and some things not so well. So I ended up working, uh, doing acupuncture with this amazing practitioner, human being, kind person. Uh, Worked out really great for acupuncture. And I tried to find someone to do herbs with because I think that those two worlds were separate enough that you would not be. And of course, nobody wanted me there all the time. So I had tried to do herbal medicine, and that was very hard for me. I, I don't remember why, but I remember in the end, I had to use a friend's father's connections from his home town or home county in Shanxi province to work with this uh, really excellent herbalist. And so I had to use those connections to get in. He was one of those guys who could like hear the people coughing in the waiting room and know, oh, this is a version of Jerso sound or this is, you know, Baymuguala sound, just by listening to the cough. And he was so busy that he had his own herb factory that he made his own formulas in powder form. And there were maybe... 25 or 30 of them, I don't remember exactly. He made so and so. He would just give a number. You know, you take number sixteen. And then, you know, they would go outside and then they would go in and be in the same building, and they get whatever amount of number sixteen. So it was vertically integrated, as they say. And uh, my impression is he originally took me on because he thought having someone who looked like me hanging around would be good for his business. But, again, this is just from my perspective. Uh, When he found out that I actually could learn, I knew something and could learn from him, he kind of flipped out. Because you're going to take his secrets now. You know what number 16 is. Yeah, it's one of those things, it doesn't, I don't understand it, because, I mean, as you know, Michael, the chances of me going into competition with him in Taiwan was absolutely zero. It wasn't near zero. It was zero, right? Zero. So he would do things like he would lie, he would lie to me about, you know, oh, I'm giving this person number 16 and I don't, I'm just making, Though no, no, that sounds like that must be, uh, you know, a shing, uh, san shing You say, oh, no, 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 it's a, uh, you know, Yin Chao san something like that. And I go, what? He said, yeah, go look it up. And he looked it up the he he meant the Yifang Jijia, which is a, a late 18th century text that was the, the main formula text in Taiwan. And so after a while, you know, even I figured out very quickly that this was something was wrong. And then I would, and so it was just like he would, he would not tell me the truth about what was going on. And so the young women who made his uh, herbs for him, I chatted them up over a couple of weeks. You know, I do some ear acupuncture to help them lose some weight, you know, that kind of stuff. <laughs> but after a couple of weeks, it'd be like, oh, you know, that, that number 16. And they would say, oh, you mean the uh, Sanshintan? Right. So I had absolute proof that he was screwing with me. So that was, again, at this point, I'm like, I don't know, 23 or something. I've been in Asia a long, long time. For me, it feels like a long time. And it was like, oh, gosh. And as you understand, I I couldn't confront him. That's not a possibility. No, 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 no. Of course not. And I couldn't even quit precipitously because that would be bad for my friend's father who had introduced me right so i had to tell him some lie i think i told him oh you know i just got news that my elderly mother is ill and so like next week i'm going to have to go back to america Uh, and i just assiduously avoided um that part of the (laughs) town the rest of the time (laughs) i was only in taiwan for a few months afterwards anyway but that was like that was dispiriting to me like uh like what do they, what do people want from me? You know, I'm just trying to learn this stuff, you know, uh, again, and again, as you know, I believe, but certainly from my own perspective, I am a person. I don't have secrets. I don't, you know, I don't care what people have studied. If they want to, they want to learn something from me, I'm happy to teach them. And I think part of it is maybe just my personality in general and partially is like these kind of experiences. Like this is not good for the medicine, you know like uh, I would be a better practitioner, I'm sure if this guy had taught me. And again, and I don't think it was a thing like he was testing me. that I told this to some Chinese people and they said, oh, he was just testing you. And I can't say 100 percent that they're incorrect, but it, ne- it didn't change over a few weeks. you know, you know he never you know, I would, he would never tell me what was going on. He would never tell me the truth. That
1: was pretty clever to uh, connect with the herb ja yeah. and
0: uh, get the get straight scoop. It was like because again, again, yeah, I just graduated from school. It's like no, that can't, and I go back and do the things, and it just didn't make sense at all. So it was either something was very wrong, and it was either him or me, and uh, I didn't have any way to check on me. I just because I'm, you know, but I had a way to check on him, right? <laughs> and so uh but i was i i can't uh i can't describe how dispiriting and how like what am i doing like you know what am i i'm just trying to learn this stuff you know like again you have to think about this is 19 this is 1975 maybe early 76 it's not like again like you were talking about earlier it's not like oh a dad's gonna go back and make a million dollars I mean, herb, the herb line in, in the United States with my stuff, but so I, I have no idea what he was thinking, to be honest. And uh, but it was like I can't deal with this. So
1: now, somewhere in all of this, there's a book that comes out. You and John O'Connor.
0: Yeah. So uh, John O'Connor was in Macau at the same time as us. He had originally come because he wanted to translate Chinese modern Chinese literature. And he got uh, interested in acupuncture to a degree and did some study. He didn't go to our school, but he went to M- Hong Kong to do some studying in a school there. And uh, so he uh, you know, was into translating, which I was not at that. And right before he left in 1975, uh, the book that we translated as the ac- Acupuncture Comprehensive Tax, this is just called Zhenjio Shueh. Uh, in Chinese came out from Shanghai in the 60s, maybe right before the Cultural Revolution. I'm not sure. The Shanghai School had put out a three-volume text, three paperback, uh, three-volume text on acupuncture, and this was their revision in a one-volume book. And so uh, John said, "Oh, we should translate this book into English," and I said, "Right." Yeah, sure. (laughs) But somehow, I don't know how he talked me into it. And so we did that in our spare time over the next uh, five or six years. So, uh, and John came back, he got a master's in Asian studies, and then he went to law school. And I came, man. I came. I came back. I left uh, Asia in '76. I spent some time in mostly in Japan, a little bit in Korea before I came home. And I went back to finish college. I had to finish university, so I finished college, and then I ended up going to medical school. And in that period of time, so uh, my degree from University of Michigan is in Chinese uh, language and literature. So I got some help from some of my professors there uh, on this book that were noted in the in the preface, and so we had this book translated in uh, by 1980, so about five years later, and then it came out in 81.
1: And that's right about the time that schools were just beginning to happen in the states, isn't it?
0: Earlier than that, so the first licensure, I believe, of acupuncture or Chinese medicine in the U.S. was in California, and uh, I don't know when the it started. I believe I went, to, I took, I got my license there. I believe in '78. This is California. In California, so I was excited. Again, for me, like, oh, you get a license. You know, if there's a license anywhere in the U.S. I have to get it. So uh, I was able to qualify and passed the exam, uh, which wasn't, that part wasn't too difficult for me. You probably had to take the test. Did you take the test in Chinese? I had to take the test in Chinese. I,
1: I bet you understood it better in Chinese than English.
0: Well, I didn't know the point numbers. So they said, well, no, spleen six. I go, oh, so I, so I had to do that. And again, given that my studies were, you know, in TCM, the only thing I had to study for the test were the five face points because I had learned them, you know, in a very perfunctory manner, and I don't think anyone I work with, except a couple of the people in Japan, ever used those point groupings uh, in a serious way. Uh, yeah, so I took it in Chinese, which which was an oral test, and so it worked out easy for me, because my Chinese was okay in those days. i just come back and um, they were the opposite of the people in Asia. They oh, you you can speak Chinese, sir. you're in. They asked me all the questions, and I got some. I mean, I didn't get them all right for sure, but once I started talking to them in Chinese, I wasn't worried about. Uh, they they were not there to keep me out. They were there like oh, welcome. So uh, so that was actually I was a surprise, huh? Uh, not so much in in outside of Asia. The, I don't know about you, the response, particularly this is again, this is 45 years ago when people heard you speak possible Mandarin. They were usually friendly. I found people to be
1: friendly, especially in Taiwan.
0: Yeah. I mean, again, you know, most people in Taiwan were very friendly to me. And, uh, um, but this, uh, the thing about the bao show, the uh, it's translated as conservatism, but it's this kind of holding on of secrets, right? And maybe that's what baosho really means, is something that is very harmful to the development of Chinese medicine. So in general, not just, of course, not just my own story.
1: So um, you've had all this experience in Asia, and, you know, what a wild ride that was. And now you're back in the States, late 70s, early 80s. You get yourself a license in California because you can get one. Then what happens?
0: So anyway, in terms of school, I think the first school was actually the New England school. I think it predates by a few months or a year the first schools in California. So the schools, there are a few schools starting in um, the late 70s. And uh, California Acupuncture College, and what was the one There was a big one in L.A., Sun, What's it called? Sun. I can't remember what the name was. Uh, they all went. They 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 have a thing, as you know. Lots of bunch ac- of schools get too big, and then they collapse because under they, they can't keep up the thing. So uh, Samra S A M R A, which is an a acronym. I don't know what the S. I don't know what they all. Mean, but Samra was not a word. It was the the S the S something A something M that also started very early, and I think the San Francisco Acupuncture College also started fairly early. Yeah, so that started uh, maybe a year after. So they must the Nisa must have started in seventy seven, maybe or seventy six, because it had been open. And then Ted Kapchat came back and he started teaching there. The original teacher was Dr. So, was a quite a, uh, a talented uh, and interesting human being. Uh, but then Ted started teaching there. So I think that must be the oldest extent Chinese medical school. Um,
1: so in these early
0: days, the schools are just beginning, you're back
1: do you have a plan for yourself? Do you have a, a sense of where you're going or how you might want to use this stuff or you, you're still kind of running on this, uh, Bensky navigation of, uh, next interesting thing. Yeah,
0: exactly. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm back in, um, Ann Arbor finishing up my undergraduate degree, treating people you know, completely illegally, but not, the, I don't know, a few, a few people, three to five people a week, maybe, Uh, in my (laughs) garret, literally a garret. But I I had some amazing uh, learning experiences. So for example, my training, like most TCM training, I think till today is that you use acupuncture for musculoskeletal things in general, with maybe one or two digestive exceptions. You know, maybe what couple of gynecology, you gynecology, know, but mostly pain and right? mostly around pain. And then you use uh, herbs for everything else. And that was my training. That's what I I think the woman, uh, the acupuncturist I studied with in Taiwan, this, her practice was not that different than the kinds of people we had seen in the acupuncture clinic in Macau. Uh, and so, but I had a, getting herbs in Ann Arbor, Michigan in, the, in the 1976 is a problem. You can do it. Uh, Sun Tian had, you can get Sun Tian herbs. And I think there was a, there was also a really good herbalist named Guo in Chicago. You could order herbs from him. But, you know, you would see the patient and then you order the herbs and the herbs would come like a week later, right? That's a suboptimal. And I had a patient with some kind of genetic disorder where she had low levels of some kind, I'm blanking on the name, but immune issues. So she had to take lots of gamma globulin all the time. And she got sick all the time. Uh, So she came to see me and the herb just didn't work out. So I treated her with acupuncture. And uh, she got much, much better. I mean, she's one of my favorite things ever. After I treated her, probably in those days, I think I treated people once a week. And maybe after a month she came in to see me. She's quite steamed. And she said, Dan, you you told me that acupuncture doesn't really have side effects. And I said, Well, yeah, that's basically well, what's, the, what's up. She said, Well, I developed insomnia. I'm waking up at four o'clock in the morning every day and I can't get back to sleep. So, okay, well, and then went through it turned out like she wasn't tired any other time of the day. She was alert all the time. And then I said, you no, know, it took me maybe five minutes of like, well, this, what, 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 what? I said, well, what time What time do you go to sleep? She goes, well, I go to sleep at eight. I said, why? I said, well, because I need 12 hours of sleep because that's, my, that's who I am. And it's like, maybe not. Maybe you only need eight hours of sleep. And you could see, almost literally see, actually, she could probably see it in me also, but the light bulb's going off like, oh, my body's working better. I don't need twelve hours to sleep anymore. But her because she had been this congenital issue, it had not occurred to her that that was the problem. So the the light bulb going off at me is like, this acupuncture stuff really works, right? That I had, I would never ever based on my training in East Asia have treated her with acupuncture. But I just had to do what I could do. So that was a really and I kept in touch with her for quite a few years. She did quite fine I, I, we lost until we lost touch. But, um, and, and she didn't need acupuncture. Again, one thing about acupuncture is, as you know, like you get to a certain point, the body takes over. Even this kind of body with its own glitches, uh, and it's fine. So, yeah, so I'm just working in my garret. Uh, I'm working on this translation. I'm not really thinking about my next steps. And then uh, my own personal journey has nothing to do with the greater uh, acupuncture journey, uh, journey of acupuncture in the U.S. is uh, just by chance I read something about osteopathy and acupuncture that I found very intriguing. So again, as you can see I say, like, oh, that osteopathic stuff, that looks interesting. Uh, and so I go see a local practitioner who turns out to be the only one, but it just found him in the young people won't know what this is but the yellow pages I looked in the yellow pages (laughs) and i saw this guy and he did uh mainstream family medicine osteopathic manipulation and a kind of background acupuncture called ryo which is you would take the uh electrical impedance of the jing well points and based on what those showed up you would then do certain acupuncture points as a way of balancing the body so it's a kind of meridian therapy but instead of the pulse you would use a you would measure the electrical impedance of these points so this looked pretty cool (laughs) i said okay i'll do that and so then i went uh, i went to osteopathic school and uh again i had some great uh I, again, you'll decide what's useful and what's not. I had developed what I call a sojourner's mentality when I was in Asia. And that means I'm here, I'm basically a guest of these people. I should learn what they have to teach me and make as little waves as possible. I'm not here to inform them or enlighten them or even necessarily share with them what they're not interested in i'm here to just kind of move through absorb what i can from them and uh you know fit in as best i can which sometimes is not that well and so when i went to High school which is very i don't know by and large the same as md school i worked in hospitals and er's and all those things uh, I was just there to do that stuff and to learn that stuff. I wasn't there to, you know, teach them the errors of their of their ways. But uh, one of the the really amazing people I worked with was a cardiologist in the in the hospital I did my internship in, and he was interested in um, everything. He's an incredibly brilliant person, and and generous person. And so he's asked me, uh, "Well, is acupuncture any good for, you know, coronary artery disease?" And I had treated some people with very mild, you know, problems that it seemed to help them. I said, "Yeah, it's pretty useful. It can be useful." I said, "Well, I have some patients for you. Would you uh, that I want you to see?" I said, "Okay." Well, like, what's the criteria? He said, "Well, they've all had two bypass surgeries that failed." They're on maximum medications, and they come into the ER in um, out of control, chest pain, at least twice a month. I said, Dr. Rogers, no, that's not really my criteria for (laughs)
2: acupuncture.
0: But he said, well, if I have you treat these patients, no one will criticize me, right? They are we're doing everything we can. And so we don't have options. And actually, for probably there are about 15, 18 patients, over half of them stopped coming to the ER. Treat them every couple weeks. And a few of them made really big improvements in their activities of daily living. They could go upstairs. I don't think anyone decreased their medications, but it was quite, uh, it was quite. Imp- I was impressed myself. He was quite, everyone was impressed. Uh, so that was, uh, but again, I didn't have extra time for this, and uh, I ended up not, to, I had a chance to stay in that hospital and work after I finished, but I ended up going to Boston instead. So that's um, just one of those decisions.
1: Dan, you had a promising career in acupuncture cardiology.
0: I, I did, I, but it just I, uh, I, as you might understand, I'm from Detroit. It was like, I think it's time to get out, to move on to a different uh, environment. <laughs> so I think it may have been a big mistake, actually. Of course, of course the other thing that uh, made me not want to do that is, of course, it's, it's still one of those things that the mainstream doctors, they couldn't deal with herbs. That's like a no-go. And so I would not have been able to do any herbs. That's something that I was not willing to forego in my practice.
1: In recent years, the Sa'am acupuncture style has generated significant interest and a loyal and growing following. In the Sa'am approach, a precise diagnosis leads to a four-needle treatment to address the five element and six chi imbalances in the body. The four needles target the controlling and generating cycles. It's common using this method for the needle sensation to be stronger than in many other styles. Thus, the choice of needle becomes important. The Unico brand of needles lends itself to both strong and gentle techniques. These superior needles are made of uncoated Japanese surgical stainless steel and feature the best guide tube on the market with its unique beveled edge. Additionally, Unico needles have a tensile property that helps with freehanding needles into Jing Well points and allows you to more easily feel the arrival of Qi. Blue Poppy is the exclusive importer and distributor of Unico needles. Use the code QI2024 to save 10% off Unico needles at www.bluepoppy.com. You'll be glad you did. But even the acupuncture itself it is weird stuff, isn't it?
0: yeah, it's very weird it's it's uh that's I think that's why it's so enjoyable and you just see like wow this <laughs> and again it's like it's not the acupuncture that's amazing, but the human body and the and the world is amazing and again as you something you mentioned in the very beginning it's just uh, evidence that the world is not like we think it is. It's not as simple as we are taught. It's very clear. And again, I think that's some of the resistance to acupuncture, to be quite honest, because Mm -hmm. it's not a question of this therapy being useful, but if this therapy is useful, we have to rethink some other things, too, that maybe most people don't want to think about, certainly most people in uh, positions of Authority in medicine, don't want to think about.
1: Well, you know, fair enough on that. As humans, as a human, looking at my own life experience, once I think I have something kind of understood, kind of dialed in, modicum of skill, capacity to make some money or capacity to be helpful, right? Any of those things, kind of understand it, feel a sense of confidence, you know, hanging out with uncertainty. Isn't so pleasant unless you've acquired a weird taste for uncertainty, and that's not most of us.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I have, I love that. I mean, I I'm actually the opposite. Someone mentioned about me many years ago. Like, I'm it's no uncertainty is uncertainty, but when I feel very certain, I'm very uncomfortable. Like, oh, something is wrong. (laughs) Just waiting for the hammer to come down, right? Yeah, and it's it's only a matter of time.
1: I hear you, my friend. There is that. I've, I've had this strange thing lately. I've been doing this almost 25 years now, which is weird. You know, like fives and zeros make me pause and, and stop and look and consider. And uh, for the longest time, I've tried to normalize acupuncture, be able to explain it in Western ways or be able to explain it in the common parlance in some way. And I would say in the past six months... I have finally come to the conclusion that acupuncture is weird and I'm perfectly fine with it now. It's taken me this long to get to the place where it's like this stuff is weird and it really requires a, a, a different set of tools for navigation and conceptualization or sometimes just dropping conceptualization, being able to just pay attention to what's there in the moment. And it's it's very, very strange stuff. And I find that it's getting stranger the longer I do it. It's not getting more it's not getting more systematized or um, it's it, it's becoming stranger the longer I do it.
0: Yeah, I think for me, Michael, talking to people, I think it's important to communicate with them, but I have found uh, most useful is to communicate with them on the basis of experience, not on the basis of theories both in terms of, you know, don't talk about gate theories or neurological theories or even yin-yang theories. Just if you communicate, it's an experiential, it, it makes sense to almost everyone experientially, which is probably where the medicine came from, right? And yeah, I think trying to um, convince people on some basis of some, I, I mean, I, get, I understand. Like In the 70s, I was super into research personally. And there was a period of time when I'm quite confident I had read every article researching the acupuncture in Chinese and English, not, not other languages. And uh, I had a realization that this wasn't... It was interesting. And I think in the end for the again you talk about yeah I'm a small person not a big person right so for the growth of acupuncture in the world this stuff is important and this should be in general if it's done well which is a big issue I'll, I'll give you my joke about that in a second but for me personally it wasn't helping me with my patients and I couldn't see a way in which it would and so it wasn't the sudden thing but over the course of a couple of years I realized I wasn't reading so much. I wasn't that interested. Because of free, the research issue is like the joke I'm gonna tell the story anyway. A joke of a guy walking down the street at night and he sees someone on their hands and knees underneath a street light. And he's obviously looking for something. And he uh, gets down, he's a nice this walk uh, passerby is a nice guy, gets down and you know, says to him, you know, what's going on? So the guy is a little inebriated and says, "Man, I, I lost my keys. I'm looking for my keys." And so the other the passerby gets down and on his hands and knees and looks around for a few minutes and doesn't see any keys there. And so he says, to "The guy, you lost your keys here." And the guy says, "No, man, I lost them in that alley over there." So you lost them in the alley over there. Why are you looking here? said, so, man, the light's much better here. And so I think sometimes the keys to what we do are in the alley. They're dark. It's dirty. There's probably needles of different kinds there. It's maybe a little dangerous. So it's not easy. They're not, you're not going to go in and just pick them up. But if you look in under the streetlight, you'll never find them. That came to be my, you know, again, one of my simplistic ways of thinking. That's my metaphor. Like, you want to find the keys to acupuncture, you got to go where acupuncture is. And um, it's not where the lights of present-day science are shining.
1: When I first went to acupuncture school, I was so glad that there appeared to be, like I said earlier in this conversation, there appeared to be a profession. There appeared to be schools. There's a way of learning. There's a path forward. Other people have walked this path. There's accreditation from organizations that accredit these things to say, this. you know, this is a real school and you can learn. And I'm glad that I had all of that when I started. Because if I knew at the beginning I needed to head down the dark alley, I, I would have never jumped in wouldn't have done it like no flipping way like no i wouldn't but there's so much that i found in my life and grateful for this i had no idea what would be asked of me or required at the beginning and that is that's always been helpful because by the time you get in it up to your neck well okay now
0: you're kind of used to it right and also i think uh our work is really good for us i mean um Again, from my osteopathic medical days, the people I know who stayed in mainstream medicine as a group, not all individuals, over time became more judgmental and liked people less. And the people in our work, if they do the work in any reasonable way, over time you become less judgmental and you like people more because you are engaging with them in a real way you're not reducing them to something you can see on a screen and I'm a, as you, as you know Michael uh, by nature I'm extremely judgmental human being but I'm significantly less judgmental than I used to be just from doing the work so I think there's uh it's one of the side benefits and so again it's also this understanding as you, doing something that seems wacky to you and works, that does something really beneficial for your brain, right? Your mind's like, okay, I really don't know what's going on. And maybe don't need to, you know, I just need to, I patients used to always ask me whether they had to believe in what I did for it to work. And I always said, you don't have to believe. In fact, i don't have to believe in it i just have to do it correctly and it will work i i'm very clear on that i've done things that at the time i thought this is wacky stuff like uh, but i don't know what else that might as well try it and have really you know amazing everybody who does acupuncture has this kind of experience that the, the belief is not important and yeah you have to everybody we have to work in a way we have some idea of what we're doing and we need some constraints. I think that it's like any art or any skill working within constraints enables you to do it better than working without constraints uh, and so I think that's why you know one of my favorite sayings is you know theory is very important in practice in theory <laughs> But it's it's both it's both of those things. It is important, but you have to make sure that you don't take it super seriously, because then you will box yourself in. I don't I don't care what the theory is; there are, it there it's going to be if you take it too seriously, it will box you in, which is okay, I guess, but to the detriment of your patients, which is not okay. So. I have
1: found over time that when I have the thought, well, according to the theory, that's when I know I'm lost. I've lost the scent of the trail. Whatever it was that I was following in a way that seemed sensible, it's gone. According to the theory
0: means start again. Yeah, according to the theory means, well, let's try that and see what happens.
1: Yeah, you could do that too. But but I found more often than not, when I rely on theory and, and what I'm supposed to do with that, at this point, it's a marker for me that I need to like resettle myself and pay attention differently, because those treatments never work. They just I mean, at this point they don't. But that's that that's just where I'm at with that.
0: Yeah, it keeps you present. It's a, it's a, it's one of those. What do you call it? Yin Yang type of things. I, I don't know. <laughs> well,
1: you know, they always say it comes back to that, and and I reckon it does. But there's the ten thousand things in between, and and that's where it gets interesting. Well, House. Well, we didn't do much history. We did some history. Yeah, we did. You know, there's so many different streams that make up. What i'm going to put under the rubric of chinese medicine oriental no i can't say oriental medicine whatever we're calling it this week there's so many streams that come into it and so many
0: influences yeah i think to me the the stream about how it got legalized how it spread how they pulled off this kind of bootstrap thing right of come making up their own organizations and getting them accredited and again, the fact that, no, again, in 1976, it was illegal everywhere in the US, basically, 75. And now it's legal everywhere. That's a fascinating and important story that I just happened to not know anything about. <laughs> but I think the, those people, there's a lot of amazing people that, that worked really. Because again, if you ask me, like, if I came back, when I came back in 76, would you think, oh, yeah in 30 years there'll be 50 acupuncture schools so that will be legal uh there's a uh, it'll be insurance will pay for it in many states and might even get medicare i would have just laughed my head off like oh, that's that's not that's not uh, in the cards so i didn't know anything that hasn't changed
1: bootstrap i think is is a good way to say it i've had a number of other folks on this series in fact if, you're, if you've been listening to the series, you probably heard them already. There was an incredible bootstrap moment, and there was an incredible moment of people, they were just kind of like you, Dan. They were following something that caught their attention. They couldn't not follow it. And partly what happened as they moved forward was meeting other people, also doing this. Like, how do we take this forward? And there was there was a real... Pivotal moment where things kind of coalesced, and a profession was created by people who just stepped in, did not know where it was going to go, but knew that something needed to happen. And we're going to start with some of the basics that we know. Let's get some schools. Let's get some accreditation. Let's get a licensure, and to get the licensure, you need to have the state to be able to go. Well, you prove that you've got a standard. Okay, we get a standardized test, and then there's a profession. Yeah, but it's uh, it was all created by people not unlike you that were following
0: something that didn't yet exist. I mean, the maybe the last thing I I want to talk about, if it's okay, is a because you asked like, what is it like to become an acupuncturist, right? And uh, I I did this. I don't know. It was maybe before, after. It must have been after your time. But I used to do a little five minute talk at the Scion graduations. I thought about this issue one time and I realized that for me, and again, this is more to give people the sense they can do what they want on a certain level. For me, I didn't, when I started doing this, think I'm going to, I want to become someone who does East Asian medicine. I didn't think, oh, I want to be like these people I study with in Asia because the ecology is completely different. And I didn't think, oh, I want to be like a Western doctor because that medicine is completely different. And the uh, metaphor for me was becoming like a jazz musician uh, and that uh, I had to know my chords and my progressions and do my scales. And then instead of the difference being jazz is a creative expression of who the people are and uh, East Asian medicine is a creative response to who people are, right? So you're not there to express yourself; you're there to respond in a creative way, knowing your different scales and everything to to your patients. And at the time, I thought that this is honest, the heartfelt, and blah blah blah. But I thought afterwards, like that was probably not the most appropriate thing. To tell these people who are just graduating, but the reason I bring it up here is that two of the people who were in that class many many years later, like when they were leaving the Seattle area, wrote to me and said that that idea—not so much to, to be to be like a jazz musician, but that they we are still in this period where they could look at doing East Asian medicine in a way that suited them, or they had the uh, leeway to not fit into a straitjacket of what it should be, had made a big uh, impact, a positive impact, on their own practices.
1: Well, that piece about it not being a creative expression of who we are, that brings a lot of ego in, which can cause all kinds of trouble. To think of it in terms of a creative response to the patient. That, man, that's a great place to start with any clinical encounter. Creative response to the person in front of me. Probably a good place to put a pin in it for today.
0: I think so. Thanks (laughs) for inviting me as always. Letting me join on as is my want. Thanks, Dan. It's been fun. You take care. Yeah.
1: Had it not been for Dan getting sick with something that did not respond to Western medicine, we wouldn't have the same foundational books that we rely on today. Dan's interest in Chinese, it led him to Taiwan. And having some herbs effectively change a troublesome illness, that aimed his curiosity at Chinese medicine. It's never a straightforward path when you're following your curiosity. And that's not a problem. That's an opportunity. And worth remembering the next time that you've set your heart on not just knowing about something, but looking to understand it. Whenever I listen to Dan, I am reminded that there are no pat answers, that the world is fluid, ever-changing, and being able to recognize when you're wrong with a shrug and a smile, to have the capacity to take a topic seriously, but not take yourself too seriously. So you can approach your learning with a sense of being linghor, with being lively and flexible, it goes a long way. And it goes a long way because we are not looking for answers, but rather understanding that it takes some cultivation. And a spirit that is as happy to get a yes as a no, as you turn information into knowledge and then distill knowledge into wisdom. Well, friends, this wraps up our history month here at Geological. I hope that you have enjoyed and gained an appreciation for some of the people who were there at the beginning and then kept moving forward along a path that, it turns out, they blazed. Of course, there is much more to this story or perhaps better said, stories of Chinese medicine's emergence into the mainstream cultures of the West. So do expect to hear more stories from time to time on those who were here in the beginning as our trade was finding its way into the everyday lives of those of us who live here in the West. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends.